I've been out in church for the past couple of weeks. Hopefully you know why. I've been, uh, we were in New, New Orleans, uh, taking a teenagers and a few adults uh, with us down to New Orleans. And, and I wanted to take some of the things that um, I saw, I learned, um, and, and bring back a little bit today as I uh, open up God's Word here this morning. When you come back, there's always a lot of things that you're trying to process through and, and connect dots and what, is, what God is teaching me and, and how I should respond and things like that. Uh, you heard a little bit of that last week when it came to the, just the video that we showed. Hopefully you, you got a chance to see that. And as I thought of things that I could bring home, uh, a passage, uh, actually a specific verse in uh, the life of Jesus kept coming to my mind. And so I want to share that with you, but, but before we get there, it's going to be in Mark chapter 6, but before we get there, I just want to give you a, a brief context about what's happening. In, in Mark 5 or Mark 6, Jesus uh, commissions the 12 apostles, and he sends them out. And he says, go out into the country, preach the gospel, and heal the sick, cast out demons, um, perform miracles. And, and that's what they did. And, and they go out, and they go out into the countryside, and they're preaching Jesus, they're preaching the gospel, they're, they're healing the lame, healing the sick. They're um, doing all of these miraculous things. During that same time, John the Baptist uh, was beheaded. So he was killed. And so Mark 6, we see the apostles coming back to Jesus to kind of report in, to check in about what's been going on. And so they're telling them about all the things that they're teaching and all of the things that they're seeing um, and all of the miraculous things that have been happening as the, this movement surrounding uh, Jesus has been birthed. And so the apostles are probably the ones who bring the news of the death of John the Baptist to Jesus. And so you can imagine that as the disciples come back, as they're talking with Jesus, as they're sharing with them all that's going on, um, they're obviously probably pretty tired. Jesus just gets news that his good friend, his cousin, his partner in ministry has been killed. And so he says, you know what, disciples, you know what we need to do? We need to take a break. We need, we need to get some rest. Let's get in the boat. Let's go across the sea. And let's go find a quiet place where we can just relax. We can rest um, for a little while. And so it's, that's what they set out to do. They hop on a boat. They get on the uh, Sea of Galilee. And they look for a secluded place away from the crowd, crowds. And that sounds nice. Except that's not what happened. They get on the boat. They're looking for a quiet place. And when they land, the crowds have followed them, have found out where they're going, and somehow the crowds are now on the shore. So Jesus, his disciples, they're looking to get away. They're looking for some refreshment. They're looking for some quiet. And instead, they're met with another crowd. And surely this crowd is like all the other crowds. They want to hear more about Jesus. They want to hear more of his teaching. They want to be and experience more of his miracles. And so I just want to stop right there before we get to the verse. And I just want you to think. Imagine you're the disciple of Jesus. How would you have reacted in that moment? Okay, because if we're talking about me, I would not have been very happy. I'm looking forward to some rest. I'm looking forward to some quiet. And so I can just imagine myself complaining because I tend to do that from time to time, to Jesus. Jesus, why don't these people just leave us alone? We've already done so many things. We've already healed so many people. We've already been teaching all these things. Why are these people following us? Why won't they leave us alone, Jesus? I'm like, Jesus, 
I recognize that guy from the other day. Jesus, you healed him, and now he's bringing his brother to be healed. Like, can't we put a limit, like one healing per family or something? Because this is just going to get out of control, Jesus. Right? I might look at the crowd, and maybe I'll pull Peter aside. Hey, Peter, Peter, can you believe all these people? Don't they have somewhere else to be? Peter, don't these people have jobs? They're just a bunch of freeloaders. They're here trying to get free bread, free food, free wine. And they're just sitting here taking advantage of you, Jesus. Can you believe that? It's like, okay, crowd, if you're here to see Jesus, we're going to have to organize this. Okay, because this isn't working. So we're going to get in line, and we're going to hand out numbers, just like at the deli line in the supermarket. We're going to hand out numbers, so that way, hopefully, we can get through this, and we can get to our rest. Because this isn't what we're supposed to be doing right now. Jesus, why are these people so needy? They're like my toddlers. Don't they, don't they have enough? Jesus, maybe you can use some of those God powers and just like secretly transport us, port us somewhere where no one can find us. Can't you do this for us, Jesus? And that's where Jesus comes in. And he kind of smacks me upside the head, right, with his metaphorical two-by-four. And this is how Jesus responds. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd. And he had compassion on them. Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. You know, this is what makes Jesus, Jesus. And this is what makes me, well, not Jesus. Right? When I'm tempted to focus on myself, my priorities, my problems, my issues, doing what I want to do, getting to where I want to go, Jesus sees people in need. He has compassion on them. Yes, I'm sure he's still tired. And yes, he still is mourning the death of his friend and ministry partner. Yes, he promised the disciples rest. But he sees the people. And the people take priority. It's important to note here why Jesus had compassion on them. You know, he didn't have compassion on them because they were sick. He didn't have compassion on them because they were poor or hurting or hungry. Although most of the crowd probably was those things. That's not why he had compassion on them. What does the verse say? He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so what does he purpose to do first? Teach. What does he teach them? Well, presumably, the gospel. He teaches them about himself. He teaches them about the Father. Before the miracles, before the feeding of the 5,000, which is momentarily about to happen, Jesus teaches the people. And throughout the gospels, we don't want to miss the emphasis emphasis on evangelism and the gospel partnered with the miracles and the meeting of needs. You know, in in New Orleans and pretty much all the other trips that I've led here at the chapel and and 
had the privilege of being a part of, you know, we get the opportunity um, to meet the needs of people. We're confronted with people who have needs, and we get a chance to meet those needs. And, and, and man, it feels good to go somewhere, to go somewhere, to meet those needs, and to share Jesus with those people in both word and action. But as I thought about our trip, especially this, this past week, I've been wondering why why we don't seem as motivated or as excited to share Jesus and meet the needs of the people around us. So I want to just connect some thoughts I have with our experiences from New Orleans and then ground them in a biblical text so you know I'm not up here just spouting off a soapbox or making things up. All right, But bear with me because... I, I think we want to answer this question first. Why don't we engage with the people around us? Because the fact is, there's nothing that we did in New Orleans that we couldn't do here in St. Louis. And I think that's something as a church we really need to consider and, and think about. But before we get there, why don't we? What are the barriers that prevent us from engaging with the people around us? Well, the first one, they don't look like us. If you don't think you make judgments about people based on the way they look, I just say you're wrong. You're wrong. Everybody brings their set of experiences, biases, preconceived notions when it comes to prejudging people. And I'm not saying that's all wrong. I'm just saying we have to recognize that, that we bring ourselves and our past and our history and our context into how we read people, look at people, and judge people. And we need to be careful because it definitely can become a stumbling block to reaching people for the Lord. And so on the way back from New Orleans, we stopped in Memphis. And we stopped in Memphis, and in Memphis, we went to the National Civil Rights Museum. And the National Civil Rights Museum in Memphis is a testament to what happens when we let our prejudices to allow something like skin color determine how we treat people. It was wrong then, and it's certainly wrong now. And as I toured the museum and, and walked through the history of everything that's there, I was just constantly thinking to myself, like, where was the church in all of this? And I know there was good people and there was church people and there was white people um, and, and as working alongside people who were seeking out justice and equality. And then I just kind of wonder, like, well, where would I have been if I was there in the Jim Crow era with all this segregation? Where would I have been? Would I have been standing next to those who are standing for justice and standing for equality purely just because people had different skin color? Or would I have been sitting in a pew of a church going Sunday after Sunday and not really caring very much because it didn't affect me. The fact is, we're not going back there. But we have to, as a church today, we cannot allow the fact that people look different from each other to be a barrier to the gospel or to meeting the needs of the people around us. And we can talk about things like racism all day, but that's not the only way we make judgments about people based on how they look. Right? We make all kinds of judgments. If I showed up here in my swimsuit and tank top and flip-flops, right, you, you'd make an assumption about me. I almost did because it's pretty hot out. 
And you just naturally make assumptions based on your past, your history, your context. You're making judgments on whether what I should wear to church, how I should wear, where I should preach in, and all of that stuff. You, we make judgments about whether or not people should have tattoos, how many tattoos they can, what kind of tattoos is appropriate or not appropriate. We make judgments about people based on the car they drive, how many cars they have, how they cut their hair, what hairstyle is appropriate for church, out of church, in church. We make judgments based on all kinds of things that are nothing more than externals. And here's what you need to hear. We go on and on. But this is where I think is important about this conversation. If you claim to be a Christian and you allow some external factor become a barrier to meeting a need or sharing the gospel, you're in sin. There's no other way to put it. We do not allow. The gospel does not allow us to... Make external factors a thing when it comes to sharing the gospel and meeting the needs of those around us. Peter realized this in Acts chapter 10. The text says, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to Him. Sometimes we don't engage with people just because they don't look like us, and that's wrong. But we also don't engage with people because they don't think like us. It's because they don't think like us. So while we were serving in New Orleans, another opportunity we have was to go to a food pantry. It's called Love in Action Food Pantry. And they serve between 175 and 200 people a day. It was a busy place. And they had a system, and they had it organized, and people had referral cards and all of this stuff. So I know they had some sort of application process. And I didn't see it, but I'm pretty confident that their application did not ask which political party they affiliated with. I'm pretty sure they didn't ask what denomination or religious background they had. I'm pretty sure they didn't ask their opinion on immigration, the border, the environment, homeschooling versus public school, sexuality, creation versus evolution, or even their favorite sports team. I'm pretty sure that that did not make the application. Do you know why? Because they were focused on meeting needs of people. They were working with people who were hungry who needed food. And it was an opportunity for them to love people with a Christ-like love and meet needs. And if we allow intellectual or social issues to stop us from having compassion on those who are lost and hurting or in need, we are doing something wrong. We're not talking about who can be leaders of the church. We're not talking about whether or not they can be members of our church. We're talking about seeing people who are in need and being willing to engage with them. We can't let how they look or how they think be a barrier to the gospel. And the last barrier I think about is that they don't act like us. 
So another opportunity we had while we were serving was to be the volunteers for a daytime summer camp for kids. They had kids from kindergarten up to 13 years old. And, and let me just tell you that um, there was a big difference between how those kids acted and how our kids are downstairs acting right now in children's church. I'm pretty sure that's a true statement. Right? They didn't always have the manners that we would have liked them to have. They weren't really always that respectful. They used some words that we wouldn't want our kids to use. Right? Half the time they seemed uninterested or unengaged, and we kind of wondered, what are we even doing here? Like, are we, are we accomplishing anything? But Pastor Greg the guy who was in, in charge of the ministry and the pastor of the church, he kept telling us, what you're doing matters. Just keep loving these kids. Just keep serving these kids. Just keep engaging with them. Ask them questions. Just find ways to help these kids. And you know what happened? We learned about these kids. And as we learned more about these kids, we were confronted with some of their realities. We, uh, we were working with a 13-year-old girl who a few years ago uh, witnessed her father shot and killed in front of her. I was eating breakfast with a guy, a, a, a probably 12-year-old kid I was working with all week, and uh, he was asking about the food. I was telling him about the food pantry, and he was asking where it was because he wasn't familiar with it. And I was showing him on my phone where it was. He's like, oh, let me see that. And he like goes down the road from the food pantry. He's like, this is where my uncle got killed last year. Like, these were the kids that were there in this church and we were working with. At the end of the day, we're seeing single moms who are tired and overworked and just doing all they can to just get their kids to the church. And some of them stayed a little later so they could go to that church's food pantry afterward. And in those moments, because it was only brief moments, we realized that what we were doing mattered. But if we let the kids' outward actions determine our level of engagement with them, we would have missed this place of ministry because we would have been too caught up about their behavior and the things that they were doing wrong. And we would have never had the proper context for the hurt and the pain and the struggle that these kids were dealing with on a daily basis. And so what's wrong with these things? Why are these barriers? Well, they're barriers because we're thinking wrongly. There's two words, they and us, and that's where the problem is. Too often we look at people as us versus them. And we look at people like us versus them. We have no hope of reaching them with the gospel. If we're concerned with how different someone looks or thinks or acts, before we recognize them as people in need, we have failed to live up to the example that Jesus calls us to be and see people as they truly are, sheep without a shepherd. At the most basic level, we must remember we're talking about people. We're not superior to them. There's no us up here and them down there. We have all been created by God. We have all been created in His image. He loves the whole world and He died so that we might live with Him. That's the message and that's the gospel that needs to be shared. We have the opportunity to guide people toward the truth, but only if we take down these barriers. And so up to this point, I'm just one guy giving my opinion, really, if we think about it. 
So what's the church supposed to do? And what are individuals, what are their responsibility in all of this thing? And why is this important? To me, this is bigger than some social justice message that's supposed to make you feel bad about not sharing the gospel enough or volunteering at the food pantry, although you should do both of those things. No, this is of extreme importance because how you treat those in need is a reflection of how we understand God's love for us. And if there are gaps in who we help or how we help, we may be entertaining wrong thoughts about God, which is what Tozer says is the most important thing about us, how we think about God. And if we are entertaining wrong thoughts about God and His love, then we may not understand this Christianity thing as much as we thought we did. So in the last few minutes that we have, I want to bring us to this passage in 1 Peter. This is the, the last few verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. Because Peter is addressing this diverse group of, of Jews and Gentiles who have been scattered across Asia Minor. Persecution is increasing. We talked earlier about how he's encouraging them. He's reminding them of core fundamental truths about what it means to be a Christian. Core fundamental truths that they'll have to hold on to in order to thrive in the midst of difficult circumstances or persecution. As I think about our culture, I think we too need to be reminded of these truths. So we come to the last few verses of 1 Peter chapter 1. It's verses 22 to 25. Let me read them quickly. Hopefully you have it open in front of you. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God, For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So this passage, I want to point out these three truths about our new life in Christ. Here's the first one. New life brings new love. New life brings new love. You look at verse 22 and verse 23, Peter calls the church to love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Where did the church get a pure heart from? How are we supposed to have a pure heart? It's at the beginning of the verse. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. What's the truth? The gospel. It's the gospel that brings the pure heart, that enables us to love one another We can't hope to love one another earnestly outside of the power of the gospel. You know, this word earnestly is the same word that is used as Jesus is praying earnestly in the Garden of Gethsemane right before He's crucified. How earnest does Jesus pray? He's sweating blood. That's what Peter calls the church to do and to love one another. Remember, Peter's writing to this mixed group of Jews and Gentiles from all over these various regions. 
Peter doesn't say, hey, if all of you who look like this, think like this, act like this, you go start a church over here. And for all of you that look like this and think like this and act like this, why don't you all group together and make a church over here? And oh, you don't look like any of those two? Well, why don't you go make third church in Asia Minor so that way you have your church full of people that look like you, think like you, and act like you. That's not what Peter charges the church to do. He says, no, you need to buckle down and you need to love them even more. You need to love them with an earnest love. How can Peter call these people to this kind of love? Because they have all been saved by the same grace and the same God and the same Word. It's the Gospel that changes us. It's the Gospel that rips down the barriers of what we've been talking about, how people think and look and act. It enables you to see past those barriers and see and love one another truly as Christ has loved us. So what does that look like? John speaks to that in 1 John 3. He says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our life for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. This is not natural to us. It takes the gospel working in our hearts to open our eyes to the needs of the others around us. And yes, Peter is addressing the church. And he's saying this is how we should love one another here in this church. And as Jesus says, when we love people like this, they will know that you are my disciple. So new Christ, new life in Christ brings new love. But new life also brings new perspective. Peter follows up this challenge to, to love earnestly. And he quotes this passage from Isaiah 40. And the reason why he does this is because he's, he's trying to get their heads wrapped around perspective. The things of this world are fading. It's falling away. They won't last forever. The things to hold on to are the things that will last. And the things that will last is the Word of God, is the Gospel. Everything else is like the grass and the flowers. They're here today, but they will soon be gone forever. And so Peter's saying, hey, stick to the Gospel of love. Focus on the eternal things of God. And so it's not wrong to get involved with politics and get involved with education. And it's certainly not wrong to buy houses and cars and things. But we must keep the proper perspective in light of the Gospel and how it has rescued us and how it has the power to rescue those around us. And this is why it's also foolish to think that there will be just some human solutions to fix the world's problems around us. It has to be eternal 
answer. And that is found in the Gospel. The Gospel is the only satisfying solution for racism. The Gospel should be the thing that propels us to champion human rights. The Gospel is what gives hope to those who are hurting and suffering and struggling. The Gospel is, the, is what has the power to break addiction. The Gospel is what unites us together as Christians. The Gospel is what has the power to save marriages and help us parent. The Gospel is what brings us inner transformation and peace. The Gospel is what breaks down prejudices. The Gospel is what motivates our good works. The Gospel tears down fear and tears down lies. The Gospel is what brings meaning and value and purpose to life. And we could go on and on and on, but why is the Gospel the answer to all of these problems? Because all of these problems are rooted in the same cause, and that's sin. And the only way to combat and conquer sin is with the Gospel. This is why Christ came to die, to fix the brokenness, fallenness that sin has brought and wrought on this world. The Gospel endures forever. The Gospel's truth is unchanging and it alone has the power to save fallen man. This is the lens by which we must view the world. This does not mean that we don't meet the needs of those around us. It's actually quite the opposite. But it does mean that we consider the central purpose of the Gospel in all that we do and especially in our service. So I would love for you to volunteer in the food pantry at Chapel of the Lake, but I don't want you to volunteer in the food pantry so you can come tell me how good you are because you volunteered in the food pantry and it made you feel better to feed somebody. That's ignoring the Gospel. I want you to understand that the food pantry is an opportunity for the Gospel. The food pantry is an opportunity for you to meet someone, to speak hope and truth into their life, to show and introduce them Jesus. I don't want you to just to get together with your small group and go to the economy inn and serve the homeless dinner so you can come tell your friends how, you're, how good of a Christian you are and how much it gives you pleasure to do something good for somebody else. You're missing the gospel focus. You need to look at the economy inn, the ministry, the homeless as a gospel opportunity. That you're not just bringing dinner, you're bringing the hope of the gospel. That when you go, you're looking at people as people and you're seeing people who are like sheep without a shepherd and you're looking for opportunities to speak truth, hope, and love that only the Gospel can fulfill into the lives of those that you meet. When you do kids' ministry here at the Chapel of Lake, I don't want you to view yourself as a babysitter, someone that just helps kids do stuff so their parents don't have to deal with them. No, kids' ministry is Gospel ministry where we have a chance to invest in the lives of children and tell them the meaning and purpose of life and how it's derived from the Word of God which will endure forever. When you're a nursery worker, you are involved in the gospel business. When you volunteer at the Good News Clubs in Wentzville and in Lake St. Louis, like some of our people are, you view that as gospel purpose. We're not just trying to make kids feel good on a Monday afternoon. We're trying to give them the life-giving truths of the gospel. When you're greeting someone, when they walk in, we just don't want a random person smiling at them. We want someone smiling because they have been transformed by the gospel on the inside and we're happy and engaging people who are coming in our doors on Sunday morning and we understand our purpose and we're going to be here early because we know that we are have a have a gospel initiative when people walk into our doors for the first time. We could talk about every ministry in the church and we better be able to put the gospel right up next to it. 
and say this is where the gospel intersects our ministries. It means that we take eternal purpose and we insert that into everything that we do. And especially when we look at people. Jesus doesn't care what they look like, how they think, or how they act. If their real need is to hear the truth of the gospel and see the love of Christ in his disciples. Peter is absolutely calling these Christians to change the way they think and change the way they act. But that's only because he's writing to people who have been saved, who have been born again. Which brings us to our last point. New life brings new responsibility. How can I speak with boldness to the church about this? Because verse 25, and this is the word, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. There would be no church to write to. Peter wouldn't have Christians to write to if he did not, if people did not bring the message and good news of the gospel if it was not heard and received. I'm reminded of Romans chapter 10. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know this passage is not talking about pastors, right? It's talking about Christians. These are called, everyone who is a Christian is called to spread the good news. In order to truly love, the church needs to be a vehicle for the gospel. And that can happen in all kinds of different ways. But this is what distinguishes the church from just seeking some form of social justice. No, we want more than that. We want lasting change. We want eternal change that can only be brought by the everlasting Word of God. And so this is the reason that the gospel now shapes our new perspective. And that's why we make it central to everything that we do. We have a responsibility, an obligation to proclaim the gospel. Remember, a lot of the problem with the barriers in us versus them is we're forgetting that people were people, that people were created in God's image, that people are loved by God, that God died for them. You know what that is? That's the gospel. And so as we know and learn the gospel and we let it infiltrate every area of our life, we naturally, those barriers crumble and we begin to share and spread the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1, 14 and 15, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Paul knew his job. And his job was to love people, was to see them in light of eternity, was to preach the gospel. And that's us. If we have new life, we have new love. If we have new life, we have a new perspective. If we have new life, we have a new responsibility. So I just want to give you three questions to go home with. Is the love of God evident in my life through the way I love others? Saying I love Jesus is not enough. I'm sorry. It's not enough. Is the love of God evident in my life through the way 
I love others. Is the gospel central to how I view my life and those around me? It's not what good things do you do. It's not who do you serve. It is the gospel central to how I view my life and those around me. Am I taking advantage of the opportunities that I have to proclaim the gospel? Well, I don't really have any opportunities. I just listed a whole bunch. Food pantry is an opportunity. Homeless ministry is an opportunity. Good news clubs is an opportunity. Nursery, children's workers, VBS, youth workers, Sunday school teachers, greeters, even ushers, an opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Walk outside, have a conversation. There's people on the corner all the time. Have a coworker to lunch. Better yet, have them to dinner. Take advantage of the many opportunities that you have to proclaim the gospel. So I'll leave you with this quote. C.S. Lewis. Don't shine so others can see you. Shine so that through you, others can see him. Will you pray with me? You know, I'm, I'm thankful that we're not able to do this by ourselves and you don't expect us to do this perfectly. We couldn't if we wanted to. I pray though sometimes I don't think we want to and I, I'm the first one to admit that. I let barriers become barriers that shouldn't be barriers. Please help open our eyes to the people in need around us that we would see them as you see them, as people who were created in your image that you died for, that you seek a relationship with. Lord, help us be your vehicle of the gospel. Help us take these truths, apply them to our lives. Help us wrestle with these questions. Help us rely on you. That without you, without your truths, without your gospel, that we all know that that we're hopeless. And so I thank you. We praise you for your mercy and grace this morning. We pray that you would help us be rooted and grounded in your love so that we might make a lasting impact on those around us. We pray these things in your name. Amen.